at verse 5 just to get a running start into our passage this morning. Ezra 1, verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. That's the reading of God's word. Let's have a seat. Well, this morning I finalized my introduction as I was strapping in my two twin boys, Carson and Brady, into their seats, strapped in like an astronaut in our suburban, and I put my eight-year-old in between them. And I did so in a way that actually was better than I typically do. I actually showed some patience in the process because the boys, they're four and they had their mittens on, so they didn't want to take them off, and I kind of knew that. And so I just went ahead and said, okay, I'm going to reach over and secure you and go through this work. And I thought to myself, sort of with a smile in my heart, this is some of the most mundane stuff that I do is fastening kids into their seat. I mean, it's cold. We sort of had the suburban outside. There's snow. My pants are getting a little wet. You know, I'm kind of reaching in, doing this deal. And suddenly, I had a flash of joy in my heart that doing something as mundane as that with joy is worship and pleases the Lord. And I say that in the context of failing over and over again to figure out that the mundane mundane things of life really matter to God. And I think we live for the quick fix. We live for the intervention moment. We live for the conference or the, you know, sort of the person in our life to buoy us up and take us over to the next level of our faith. We're living for sort of the windfall when we're in debt. We're looking for the way out. We sort of live for the extraordinary healing moment where some malady in our life is cured. Those things happen, but they're few and far between, even in Scripture. What God wants in your life is to be Lord over the mundane things in your life, the everyday stuff. Every little bit, and there's a quote, and we'll put it on the screen again, from Paul David Tripp, a Christian nuthetic counselor, and he says, if God doesn't rule your mundane, then he doesn't rule your life. I have to submit it all to him. And the reason I read the text and then drew our attention to the mundane things is when you look at this text on first read, counting temple vessels, 
golden bowls or silver bowls, these articles that, that God is giving a precise accounting to, on the surface it seems almost boring, almost mundane. But what I'm calling us to do is look at a text like this and get beneath the surface to see what God was doing behind the scenes. Because by the eyes of faith, that is what we're supposed to do every day in our lifetime. To see what God's up to and how he rules through mundane things. Even praying with our kids, having a good attitude, humbling ourselves to our spouse when he or she is flustered. Enduring patiently with children, singing a worship song with our kids, going to a Bible study, going to a pizza event. These things are mundane, right? I'm selling it, right? Here we go. But these things are mundane. But you know what? Here it is. The stuff that seems boring or mundane or unimportant perhaps is the most important in God's economy, especially as he's using these things to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, a baptism, for instance, that we know that's not mundane. But again, it's just a little girl humbling herself, getting into the water, and being obedient. It's powerful. The elements, when we take the Lord's Supper, bread, symbol of wine and juice we just do it basically once a month but what kind of fresh heart is found in that moment right as we participate through the eyes of faith seeing beneath the surface of something that we do as a routine to see the gospel and how the gospel has transformed our lives the mundane is powerful and I want to show you that our goal again this morning and I'm going to review and sort of build to point three that I didn't get to unpackage last week I'm glad I saved it. There's a lot there. But our goal is to see powerfully how God acts through what appears to be mundane. That's the goal. And we found this through three different kinds of people. The first kind of people are the believers in verse 5. Remember, God had a plan with the Jews that had been exiled. They'd been taken. They'd been displaced and put up in Babylonia. And they were exiled there for 70 years because of former disobedience that had been prophesied. This was going to happen 150 years before it happened. God had selected Cyrus, this king, to release them from captivity. Jeremiah was warning that it was coming. Jeremiah, a prophet who was on the scene at that time. Nebuchadnezzar had come in 605 B.C. and he had sacked Jerusalem. He had overthrown it. He had burned Jerusalem to the ground. And he had taken temple vessels out to embarrass and humiliate Jerusalem and God's people. And he trucked about 100,000 exiles into his home turf to indoctrinate them and to embarrass them. And that was all part of God's punishment and plan on God's people. But now Ezra is about the tide turning. And how God's people are now being called to obey. And to obey in a way that would be transformational. It's, it's culture shifting obedience. It's coming out of an exile mindset where they had been embedded, two generations embedded into a culture up there, 500 miles away, which was a long way away in ancient travel. 
up there under the Babylonians. And now the Persian King Cyrus had overthrown them. And so they're under this dominion and it's sort of a peaceful time. And God now is saying, it's time for me to stir you and for you to re-grasp who you are and re-centralize worship in the city of Zion in Jerusalem. That's the calling. Whether you're elderly, you're old, or whether you're young, whether you're tired, you're used to it up there, or you're a young family that's excited about where you live, even though you're sort of obedient to a pagan culture, you're okay with that. God is saying, no, you need to pick things up, you need to get out of your comfort zone, and it's time for you to go home. That's the scene that's here. And on the surface, God's people were just responding now to a king's edict. God had, verse 1, stirred King Cyrus to write an edict, to write a command for these 50,000 or so, plus or minus, to come back down. And they were responding to it. Verse 5, you have fathers, aged people, these forerunners of the faith that are there. And they were stirred. They were being moved to give leadership to the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to come home. The priests were being stirred. They were being moved as spiritual leaders. The pastors were saying, we got to go. It's, it's time to go. Time to, time to reconstitute temple worship. We've we got to make this important. We're going to move back home. And then, verse 5, everyone, all the believers are catching on. And, and God gives the secret behind the scenes impetus for this by saying their spirits were stirred. They were aroused spiritually. I put the Holy Spirit in this text. The Holy Spirit is moving their hearts spiritually to do something that's radical. No Nation has ever been so ripped out of its culture and context and returned in this way. Not before or since. And 23, 25 centuries later, Jerusalem's there. Why? Because God did this. This is a monumental transition. But beneath the surface, I want to see, I want to just dip beneath the surface and see what's going on. We, we see that hearts are being stirred to do this and they're going for this motive. They're going because they're going to reestablish, reconstitute fellowship and worship of God and re-centralize the worship of God in the appropriate place with a rebuilt temple. Temple that had been burned to the ground. It's time to, to, to say, Lord, you're going to vindicate that moment. You're, you're going to bring us back home. And, and they're obeying and responding in that way. There's not bells and whistles. There's no Shekinah glory. There's no cloud in the sky. It's just faith obedience to do this. That's what they're doing. God had to stir them to get them there, but they're there and they're changing worlds and going not by their own power or might, but by the spirit of the Lord, Zechariah 4.6. Now, second group, that's the first group, the believers. Second group is the unbelievers. Unbelievers are responding as well. They're getting on board with God's kingdom work here, his program. They don't even know why. Verse 6, it says, and all who were about them, the ones who were the surrounders, the, the, literally the surrounders, the, the communities around the believers are saying, hey, we're getting excited about this with you. And we're going to give to this project. We're going to encourage it. Cyrus's motive was probably political, just trying to get another springboard place down in Jerusalem to spring into takeover into Egypt, etc. But 
these people are getting on board, and I sort of infer that, that God was stirring them to be part of this as well. They were freely offering costly wares and beasts and goods and gold to this project. This, we know, beneath the surface was God's vindication of the wrong that had been done. It's almost a picture of the, the heaven's justice taking place. Where one day, we know from Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. Those on earth and under the earth, those in heaven, believers and unbelievers, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so this is that sort of global confession that, God, you win. It, it, this is, whether they know it or not, wittingly or unwittingly, they're, they're confessing the lordship of God. And we know from the New Testament, the lordship of Christ as they are part of this kingdom justice moment, this redemption moment. Now, all right, the third kind of person who was stirred, doing something very mundane and almost boring, as we might read at first glance in verses 7 and following, is King Cyrus again. Look at verse 7. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. On the surface, Cyrus is just giving back to the Israelites what Nebuchadnezzar had stolen. Remember, the wartime method is to overthrow or burn down a city, like the Babylonians did, to humiliate them and to dominate them by saying, hey, we're going to take your statues, your worship relics out, and we're going to steal them, and we're going to actually put them in our own temple under our Babylonian god, which was Marduk. We're going to put them in there to show that we went, we won and you lost. This is playground theology. My dad's bigger than your dad. My dad beats up your dad. That's what's going on in wartime methods here. And so in one sense on the surface, we just say, well, the war's over. Got a peaceful ruler and he's given back the stuff to reconstitute them and reestablish them and their identity back home. But there's something far deeper than this going on. It is beneath the surface, King Cyrus reconciling blasphemy that had been done against the holiness of God. And because the scripture is so illuminating and so powerful, it tells a story of this in Daniel chapter 5. And so I want to show you the living story behind this scene in the book of Daniel. So turn there in your Bibles. Maybe look at Daniel 1 first of all. Just to catch you up, you've got Daniel and his three friends, Ananiah, Hazariah, and Mishael. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, who is renamed Belteshazzar. They're part of the royal family. And it's 6.05, and when Nebuchadnezzar first sacked Jerusalem, when he first took people into exile, it was them. It was to take the royal family and, verse 2 says, the vessels of the house of God. Jehoiakim was the king of Judah and he was overthrown and then the vessels of the house of God were put in the treasury of the Babylonian God. That's, that's picking right up on the storyline where we find ourselves in Ezra. This is what happened. And as you know, Daniel 1 is about these young Hebrew boys that were the cream of the crop, 
They were the wisest, most intelligent, most physically fit men. Daniel, 16 years old, brought into this situation and is told, look, you need to learn from us. You need to learn the wisdom of Babylonia and you need to eat the king's meat and the king's food and the king's wine. You can drink that. And we're going to sort of indoctrinate you as young leaders so we can... We can sort of insinuate Babylonian doctrine all over the world. That was the method. That was the strategy. And that's what Daniel and his friends avoided. They were submissive in tone. They were kind. They weren't pushing back, but they were requesting, hey, can we just eat fruits and vegetables instead of going all the way? And then you test us and see if we're better off than the others. And we know from Daniel 1 that they actually were better off. And God was faithful to them. Verse 21 of chapter 1 kind of just gives us the bookend of the story. And Daniel was there. He was there in exile until the first year of King Cyrus. So Daniel is there as a 16-year-old all the way until Cyrus comes on the scene. These stories, I told you, going into Ezra put me into the Old Testament in so many ways. And these stories just open up what's going on and the significance of something like temple furniture. We're going to build into this. Daniel, as you know, uh, a few years later, answers and interprets a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He knows God is giving him this dream or it's supernatural because it's completely tearing him apart inside. He, he's asking, you know, all the king's horses and all the king's men. I mean, all the, you know, astrologers, all the Chaldeans, all the priests, all the soothsayers. Come and tell me what this dream means. I saw this statue and it had a golden head and, and its breast was silver and its arms were silver. And then, you know, the legs and feet are bronze. What does this mean? Because this rock, this, this supernatural rock that came from another being came and this perfect rock knocked the head off and destroyed the statue. What does that mean? And nobody could interpret the dream but Daniel. Daniel comes on the scene, gives glory to God and interprets the dream. I love Daniel 2.15 though, because you have Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 having a nervous breakdown and Daniel in verse 15 is just cool as a cucumber. He's just really trusting the sovereignty of God. And I love the way he responds in this scene because, you know, the, the dream tellers, the Chaldeans couldn't do it. So their lives were on the line and it was sort of a death warrant unless you get this dream right. And so everybody's frazzled. And Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I'm so beside myself and upset that I want you to also kill the Hebrew boys, kill the royal family. I'm just upset, so kill them too. That's what's going on. And so verse 14, you have a, uh, the, king, you know, the captain of the king's guard, Arioch, who comes to Daniel who's telling Daniel, look, this is serious. It says, Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And here's Daniel. He declared to Arioch, verse 15, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? What's the deal? Hey, let's take, let's take it down a few notches here, right? Daniel just says, I'm going to be able to interpret this dream. And so he went before the Lord and he ultimately said, listen, the dream in essence means this. You are the golden head of the statue and the silver-breasted 
um, statue and arms, the silver breast and arms are going to overthrow the head. That's the point. In other words, your kingdom eventually is prophesied to come to an end and the Medes and the Persians are going to take it over. That's what this means. Now for a time, Nebuchadnezzar responds sort of in this superficial faith saying only, you know, your God could have revealed this to you. There, there must be sort of the spirit of the gods in you. And so I'm promoting you and he promoted him. And Daniel said, don't forget my three friends. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are promoted. Things are good. Verse 49 in the king's court. And then there's the fiery furnace scene. His friends were promoted up at a level that when they didn't bow down to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar made in his own honor, they were put on trial. And ultimately, in faith, verse 16 of chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Again, we're easy. We're trusting the Lord and his plan. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace... And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. I love this. It's one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. But if not, or even if he doesn't do this, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Christianity is a bold religion, it's not passive, it's active. And it takes this kind of strength, male and female, heads full of theology with a backbone of steel to stand up and say, hey, throw me in the fire. I'm good. Right? I mean, I don't, I don't care what kind of rationalizing is going to take place when people are saying, hey, take the mark on the forehead or the hand. I'm done. I'm good. Yet just lop my head off. That's the easy way out. Just let's, let's end it because the Bible says... That people who do that are not genuine believers. So I'm just not going to go there. And that's the kind of faith that they had. That's the muscle. And so they went into the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar looked in. It had been heated up. There was a fourth member in the fire. That's probably a Christophany of Jesus Christ. And he begins to say, look, if anyone does not worship this God with this kind of strength, verse 29, they shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruins. For there's no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And he promoted... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now you got chapter 4, second dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. Daniel comes to town. He had interpreted the dream before. He comes back to the forefront. And he says, listen, you've seen a vision of a tree and a stump. And the stump, guess what, is you, Nebuchadnezzar. And the point is, is you're going to become puffed up in pride. And God is going to lay you down on the dirt for seven seasons. He's going to make you eat the grass like an animal. Your hair is going to grow out like its feathers and your fingernails are going to get really long. This is why you want kids in the service. This is the part they love. Anyway, the fingernails will get really long and you are humbled to the dust. And, and that's because your pride puffed you up. And it was a warning for Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself and he did not. Now we come to chapter 5. Chapter 5 is 23 years later, a gap, 23-year gap between 4 and 5, and you have Belshazzar, King Belshazzar, as the king ruling over Babylon. Now, in terms of my research, I find that Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. There's going to be a queen that's mentioned. The queen is actually Belshazzar's mother, 
that he's taken his cues from. And so you have Belshazzar as grandson and the queen as Belshazzar's mother. And at verse 5, you find a very proud and arrogant Belshazzar that's actually saying, listen, we're good as a kingdom. Nothing's going to happen to us. I mean, obviously, we're going to find out he ignores the prophecies and lessons that his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, should have taught him. He knew, verse 22 of chapter 5, he knew of the story of his grandfather being humbled for those seven seasons, and he ignored them, okay? He, he's just saying, hey, verse 1, let's have a big feast party. Let's get, you know, a thousand or more people in this event hall, just like the beginning of Esther, that kind of, you know, oriental despot that's going to have an event. Let's, let's drink wine. You know, let's get together. Verse 1, a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought Big mistake. And the king, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So I don't know if he started drinking and Belshazzar got drunk, if his judgment was skewed, or he was just filled with his own arrogant self. I think that's more the case. But he basically was ignoring the fact that there's a prophecy that was going to be fulfilled where the Medes and the Persians are right outside the gates and they're ready to bust through and take over his kingdom. But hey, let's just ignore all of that and party. That's what he's doing here. That's Belshazzar. He's saying, look, we've got 20 years of food stored up. We've got the Euphrates River that runs through our kingdom. You know, we've got 300 foot high walls. And so we've got this river that runs through. So we have water source. We've got food. We're good. Let's eat and drink and be merry. And he's forgetting, for tomorrow you die. That's what's going on. It's the old philosopher from the 20th century that said, if you ignore history, you're doomed to repeat it. And he was ignoring what he should have learned. And he did it in a way that wasn't just ignoring or ignorance or pride. It was blasphemy. What's beneath the surface of of the temple vessels that... We find Cyrus counting and giving precise accounting for is he's reconciling this blasphemous act against the holiness of God. The arrogance that's found behind this is astonishing. They drank wine, verse 4, and praised the gods of, look at this, idolatry. They praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And now you have God's miraculous intervention enough is enough God is saying you can't push God's patience too far because eventually God is going to intervene and right the wrongs for his holiness sake immediately verse 5 the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand and the king saw the hand as it wrote you know some people like to do away with this miracle. You know, it's sort of the scholar or liberal scholar that stays in the library a little too long and, and just misses the whole point that this is immediate, that he's seeing the actual hand of God and it's actually going to throw 
the king into violent, uncontrolled convulsions where his knees are knocking. Uh, people say, well, probably what it was was you had some waiters that were serving the people wine and they were a little bit tipsy. And so you have this lampstand that's sort of illuminating this giant place. And once it was lit, then you could see what the waiters had marked on the wall. Good grief. You know, by faith, by faith, you read a text like this and this is the, the actual fingers of God in their midst. And anytime you see any part of God, it's like you're, you're just struck dead. And that's what's the scene here. The finger of God. This, is actually, this phrase is actually mentioned throughout Scripture. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, you had Pharaoh who was being judged for not obeying God's will to let his people go. And so there was the plague of gnats. And the plague of gnats, these gnats were crawling all over the place, eating everybody up. And so you have the magicians come and they try to bang their staffs on the ground and make gnats, let there be gnats. And there were no gnats. And so finally they just said, Pharaoh, we can't do anything because these gnats are from the finger of God. Check that story out. In Exodus 31, 18, you have mention of the finger of God that wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone. In Matthew chapter 12, 28, you have Jesus who's casting out demons by the finger of God. Very powerful language. People will disregard you know, the phrase, well, I saw the handwriting on the wall, right? They'll, they'll use that phrase and completely disregard the fact that this is a holy moment where the fingers of God scribed God's judgment on the wall against the arrogant and blasphemous Belshazzar. That's what's going on. Let me show you just what Daniel says. Now, Daniel, when he comes on the scene, he's called in because the queen mother is saying, hey, you've forgotten about a significant interpreter. You've called all these interpreters to come in and interpret what's been written on the wall. You're falling apart. Look at verse 6 of chapter 5. The king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly, bring enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, quick. And the mom just says, listen, you know, your, your color's changing. You're freaking out. You forgot about Daniel, who helped your grandpa out and helped him figure out his scary dreams. And so now call Daniel back. Now, Daniel at this point is probably 82 years old. I think that means that him coming at 16 and then him being 82, you can check my math uh, later, but I think it means that they were there, they'd been there for 66 years. You remember, they're going to be delivered from exile at year 70, the first year that Cyrus is in command. So this is sort of Daniel's legacy, and Daniel is an aged man at this point serving the Lord. I love Daniel's demeanor because... Belshazzar has said, look, I will, I will give you gold. I will give you a purple robe. I will, I will make you third in command under, over the armies of, of Babylon here. I will do all these things for anyone who can interpret what is scribed on the back wall. And so he offers the same thing to Daniel when he's brought before the king. In verse 17, I love Daniel's response. Just like his Hebrew uh, brothers in the Lord cool as a cucumber. Verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Don't you just love it? It's like when, when Daniel, had, he prayed and was thrown in the lion's den. I'm going to keep praying. You know, that's what he's about to do. And 
you know, the following chapter. I'm going to keep praying. I don't care. I'm just living for the Lord. Keep your rewards. Give your rewards to another. Isn't that just classic? Hey, just give it to somebody else. They need that gold more than me. The bling isn't going to work for me. Just give that elsewhere. It says, nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Now, before he does this, he gives a little context and catches everybody up to speed and says, remember your grandpa, Nebuchadnezzar, who wouldn't humble himself, who took all the credit for the growing of Babylon. He was given the power of God to raise up and to kill and act like a god here on earth. And he became arrogant and filled with pride and was reduced to being an animal. Remember that story? Well, this applies to you, verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. Verse 23. But you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which you do not see or which do not see or hear or know. But now look at this key phrase. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. It's the same rebuke that Paul gave at Mars Hill where he said, listen, you don't know the unknown God who, in whom you live and move and have your being. God holds your very breath in his hand. And Daniel's saying, listen, Belshazzar, you don't understand who you're dealing with. You're pulling out this temple furniture You're treating it like it's idols to worship. You're blaspheming God's name and you don't know who you're up against. That's the rebuke. And so Daniel interprets the dream. It's pretty straightforward. You have the words mene, mene, tekel, and parson. That's it. It's just straightforward Aramaic on the back. Anybody could read that and understand who knows Aramaic, what that means. It's just units of money. It's the way to measure wealth. That's what these words mean. And he just describes what these words mean. But just like how any liberal scholar, any unbeliever can read the Bible and basically understand on the surface what it means. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the natural mind does not, not receive the things of the spirit of God. Unspiritual people, unbelieving people, don't have the mind of Christ. But when you see words, stories, exhortations, truth through the eyes of faith, it opens up to you. And that's the job of a preacher and a teacher is to give the spiritual meaning of the text. The text is truth and straightforward and understandable, but it has implications into your life. And that's what Daniel's doing for the king as a judgment. Look what he does. He says, uh, verse 26, the interpret, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mini, which, uh, again, units of money is talking about numbering here. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Your kingdom's days are numbered. That's the point of the first word. Tekel, you have been weighed. Now he's going personally to Belshazzar and he's saying, your days are numbered. You have been weighed. This second word is talking about weights and measurements, like you're put on the scales here, Belshazzar. And as you are put on the scale, your life is not measuring up as a ruler. And so your days are numbered in the balances and found wanting. And then Paris, your 
kingdom is divided. It's talking about dividing money here. And it's saying, look, the Medes and the Persians are about to take over the kingdom. The kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then as the story goes, Belshazzar gave the command. He followed through. He gave Daniel the robe and and the gold and the power. Daniel didn't care, obviously, because he knew what was going to happen to Belshazzar. He knew the kingdom was going to be overthrown. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. I think God snuffed his life out because he blasphemed the Lord. That's the story beneath the story. On the surface, we go, okay, what is Cyrus doing? He's, he's counting out these temple vessels. But you know what? Beneath the, sur- the surface, Cyrus was doing so much more. He was being used of God to right the wrong that had been done against God's glory and holiness. He was vindicating God's plan of enduring, covenant, faithful love to his people and saying, listen, you're knocked, out, you're knocked down at this point, but you're not out. And God's truth is marching on. And these vessels that, that sort of carried a stigma and, and carried a, a, a level of shame, these vessels are being vindicated. Let me just skip to an application right now. First, Second Timothy chapter 2. Guess what the New Testament calls his people in his church? He calls them vessels of honor. It's, it's the picture of who you are. In your former life, you blasphemed. The Bible says that you worshipped the creature rather than the creator. You say, I've never worshipped totem poles or I've never worshipped other religions or other false gods. I've never been classified as, you know, a Hindu or a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness. I've I've never gone. What are you talking about? Well... The Bible says that we worship ourselves and we put ourselves on the altar before we're saved. And that when you become saved, you confess Jesus as Lord. Do you know what that means? That means that you are saying, Jesus, you are the master. You are the only being in the universe and above the universe that's worthy of worship. That's what this young gal said in the waters of baptism. Jesus is Lord. If you'll turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, you'll see this. In the church, you have vessels that are honorable and some given to dishonor. And what Paul is telling his son in the faith, Timothy, is that in the visible church, you're always going to have the wheat and you're always going to have the tares. You're always going to have believers and unbelievers, people who know that they're unbelievers or people who don't know they're unbelievers. In this uh, immediate context, you actually find that you have Hymenaeus and Philetus, people who are telling the church and disrupting the, the fellowship, hey, the resurrection's already happened, they're giving false doctrine, and they're trying to make allowances for evil to invade the church. And Paul's saying to Timothy, listen, you've got to know that you don't need to be part of evil or false teaching. You need to be separated out from that as a member of the church. You're not fleeing the church. You're, you're vindicating who you are as a vessel of God. You say, look, I'm not going to be party to false teaching, false religion, or evil. I know who God has made me to be. Do you know that you're a temple vessel, that you were one once a long time ago, or maybe recently going the wrong way, and God turned you around 
And just like in the book of Ezra, he counted you as precious, as lovely, as glorious as his temple vessel. I mean, God's accounting of the vessels in Ezra chapter 1 and, and how much care he gives over that should embolden you for how much care he has over you. Keep your finger in 2 Timothy and go back to Ezra. Let's just open that up really quickly. Look at the care God gives through Cyrus of his holy vessels. They're going to be carried back to Jerusalem, verse 7 and verse 8. Cyrus, king of Persia, he brought these out and put in in charge of them Mithridath, the treasurer. That's the pagan official or officer. Mithridath means worshiper of the sun and moon. And then you have Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, who's also counting these vessels. Now, Sheshbazar is actually another name, probably the pagan name given to Zerubbabel. Because we're going to find that Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel are, all, are the same person assigned to bringing the temple vessels to the city of Zion and reestablishing the foundation for the temple to be rebuilt. Okay, same person, one and the same. I'm going to make the case for it anyway as we study Ezra. So you have sort of a pagan officer and an Israelite giving special care and accounting to these temple vessels. And then if you do the math, and for you engineer types and mathematicians, people who think a little bit more precisely than a guy like me, if you do the accounting of 30, 1,000, 29, 30, 410, and 1,000, it really doesn't equal, verse 11, 5,400 vessels. I think the way to answer that isn't to sort of doubt the scripture, but instead to say, listen, the important larger vessels were being accounted more carefully. And actually in um, the Old Testament accounting of what happened to those temple vessels, it's first or second Kings, there's a place where it talks about some of the vessels being destroyed. And so you sort of have more important vessels and then you have lesser vessels. And if you account all of them together, it makes 5,400. But the more important vessels are in verses 9 and 10. Another way to do it is to see this as a scribal error in verse 11, where in the original manuscript, it wasn't 5,400, but it was the exact accounting of verses 9 and 10, maybe around 2,400. Doesn't matter. The point is, God was counting these vessels as precious, as very important to himself and for his glory. And let me just say this back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. God is going to bring you all the way home as his special vessel. Verse 11 of chapter 1, it says the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. A profound statement. And it could parallel with Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, where John saw the new heavens and the new earth coming down. And guess who's in the middle of heaven? Jesus Christ and his presence. We are God's temple and we are his worshipers, his temple vessels who are cared for and brought all the way home. You know, there's a lot there in 1 Timothy 2, and I just sort of want to touch on, or 2 Timothy 2, I want to touch on something. There's a call here in verse 20 to understand who you are. It's the key to the Christian life. 
you need to understand that you're part of something. Even as you live in your mundane world, waking up, going to sleep, working a job, going to a Bible study, not going to a Bible study, again, going to a pizza lunch, not going to pizza lunch, being a part of Anchorage Grace or being sort of um, in and out. I mean, these decisions are all dictated by how you perceive yourself. And that's what Paul is driving at to Timothy. He's saying, look, in the church, you've got vessels that are sort of the plasticware, the styrofoam, the aluminum, that you kind of, they're here, they're useful, but they're thrown away. And guess what? Those are the people who are not genuine believers. And then you've got the honorable vessels, the ones who are setting themselves apart, who, uh, verse 22, it says, flee youthful lust and follow after righteousness. People who get who they are and they say, you know what? I'm a struggling Christian. I'm not perfect, but I'm going to run from sin and I'm going to run to righteousness. I'm going to flee some things that are dogging me and I'm going to make a choice this morning to not sin in that way and I'm going to flee and pursue. I'm going to, like Paul says, like he's in a chariot race in Philippians 3, I press towards the mark. I lean towards being like Christ because I'm going somewhere. He knew who he was. Now in 2 Corinthians 4, he called himself earthenware, but in the earthenware is the treasure of the gospel. Do you know that you are a temple vessel made for honorable use? Look at, look at um, verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Are you ready, church? Are you ready? You'll be ready if you know who you are. That you are part of the mundane on the surface, but part of the profound beneath the surface. A temple vessel being carried out of exile, out of an exile mindset to centralize Christ worship and glory in this world. You're a sojourner, a stranger, an alien whose citizenship is in heaven and we have a foretaste of that kind of worship as we gather collectively in a veritable tent meeting going along caravanning to ultimate glory. What we're called to do is be this temple And to be these temple vessels and call other people to join in for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time. And Lord, even as we have sort of re-journeyed through this text to make this point, I pray, God, that we can apply it to our lives according to the take-home points. If God doesn't rule your mundane, he doesn't rule your life. I pray, God, that we would give the mundane to you. pray that we would, Lord, be open to you exposing what we might be dismissing in our life as unimportant. I pray that we would see your kingdom work as important, that our role is important. No matter how sinful we've been or are being, we are still gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve. Let us flee from youthful lusts and let us pursue righteousness. Lord, stir us, and we pray that we would see people who are stirred around us and join them in kingdom work. And I pray, God, that we would sort of reestablish by faith that you are accounting your temple vessels, that you are counting us as righteous, that we are vessels of honor because you have declared it so, set apart for good works, useful to the master's work, and I pray that we would be useful to you. We give our souls to you.
for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to have you be seated because I know.